studying in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, but um, before we do, we want to open with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for another Sunday to gather together, to sit under the teaching of the Word, to have fellowship and prayer, and know that you will graciously work in our lives as we come in faith and sit under the means of grace. We pray for the dear saints scattered around the world that listen in, some of whom are lacking fellowship and don't know where to go. We pray for them that you would help them find the remnant, find people to gather with, find fellowship, and may the teaching that they get from this uh, Sunday school class also be a great blessing for them. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. That was our topic on the radio yesterday in the second hour about why people are leaving church. Did you, anybody hear that? Yeah. So, um, as, you, if you, as you heard, I don't, I don't think that we have the option of saying we don't need the church or we don't need church. I, I don't believe that that's a New Testament idea. It's wrong, yeah, because we, it's, it, they tried to do that literally in church history, if you want to think about that. And I don't know how many of you study church history. We have a course on church history on our website. But after Constantine endorsed Christianity, a lot of Christians be, thought the church was corrupted. I mean, in some cases it was. Because of money, because of the influx of a lot of people, they saw corruption. And so they thought that a, the, a better way to have a pure Christianity was to flee out into the wilderness and sit by yourself somewhere. And so we had these desert fathers, and eventually so many of them were going out there that they ran into each other. They had a hard time staying isolated. But what they found out is when they got out into the wilderness, weird things started happening, happening and demonic stuff, and it wasn't so good. And what they forgot was that Jesus told us to love one another. And there's a lot of one another's, and it's kind of hard to do that when you're just all by yourself, isn't it? But thank God that he's given us fellowship, and he's given us the means of grace, and he's given us the word of God, and brothers and sisters to open the Bible together with, and brothers and sisters to pray with. Talking about that, I get my notes here, and so forth. So thank God for that. Okay, here's one of the reasons we need one another. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9, starting with verse 7, we're talking about giving. And in this case, Paul was taking up an offering from Achaia and Macedonia. He already had done so in Macedonia and was urging the Corinthians to participate who were in Achaia. And the point of the offering, as we've been studying, was that Paul, along with these emissaries from churches in Macedonia, were going to journey ultimately to Jerusalem to bring relief to the impoverished saints from Judea, with a, with a secondary goal of showing the unity of the church that we have not just a Gentile church and a Jewish church going two different directions, but that God was making the two one new man in Christ, as it says in Ephesians chapter two. So we're on verse seven, studying about giving. That's what the topic is here. It says each one must do just as he purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, 
The must do is not in the Greek. There's no imperative here. So, I don't know why the New American Standard worded it that way, but it's, it's not, uh, the Greek doesn't demand that you'd say must do, because that sounds like an imperative, and there's no imperative. It has purpose, and this is a couple times now we've seen this. The word here that's translated has purpose from the Greek means has chosen before. So in other words, let's think about this one. As we've been going through these two chapters, we're going all the way through 2 Corinthians, but 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 are the most concentrated teachings in the whole Bible about giving. And as we've been doing this, we've been finding out that typical practices that are popular in a church are unbiblical. That's what we're finding out. In fact, sometimes remarkably unbiblical. Well, this is an interesting one here. Now, when I was a new Christian, I remember going to meetings, uh, evangelistic meetings, where a, a traveling evangelist would come into town, and typically such a person was, how would you say, what made them a traveling evangelist? They were more of an orator or a showman or, you know, I mean, they were, who was one I remember? I'm thinking of Brian Rudd. Did you remember him? He, he claimed that God had changed his fingerprints so he could get out of prison. And then he and he, he and he had this publicity shot. He had this big head of blonde hair. You know, this was the 70s. And then they'd take a picture from behind, so the light made it look like he had a halo. We <laughs> hold his Bible, and then ooh, this is a holy guy. Well, I remember going to these meetings when I was in Bible college, and I'm telling you, that guy was very talented at taking an offering. He'd be doing just the opposite of what Paul said. The reason Paul wanted them to purpose ahead of time, literally, to purpose ahead of time, or it says here, has chosen before what to do, was to avoid the sort of emotional appeal that could be made at the spur of the moment. In other words, they decided ahead of time how much they wanted to give and if they wanted to give. And then when the people came, they would give. But the evangelists would, would say, we're going to have an offering, but I don't want you to take your billfold out yet. Don't write any checks. Don't take out your billfold. Wait, 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 wait. And then he'd preach some more. And then he would start in on this spiel about giving lots of money and why you should do that. And it'd be, it just was very polished. And then right at the last moment when he gets everybody worked up to fever pitch, all right, now we take the offering. Now you get your billfold out. Now you write your... Now you write your check and then trying to maximize the amount of money that would come based on the feeling of the moment, you know, the excitement of the meeting and the emotional appeal. Now, Paul says just the opposite here. Paul says to purpose ahead of time. Okay, so that this was a rationally thought out decision to give and how much, not one that was predicated on somebody standing over you. <laughs> I've heard of this one too, where they take the offering and if there's not enough, you go back and take it again. <laughs> or you bring a bucket and you sit there. <laughs> Is that all you got? <laughs> so Paul didn't want that happening. He didn't want anybody being pressured, you know, based on that sort of thing. And so he says, as he purposes hard, not grudgingly. And the, the Greek is interesting here, not out of grief. There's a genitive. We talk about the construction. You can have an objective or a subjective, but uh, here would be not out of grief. 
lupe. Launida uh, lexicon says this about that word as used in this kind of context. A state of unhappiness marked by regret as a result of what has been done. So Paul didn't want somebody to be pressured, you know, and cajoled into giving their money, and then the result would be grief. Why did I do that? Have you ever gotten rid of money and then later wondered why you did that? <laughs> I don't know whether you know a high pressure salesman talked you into something or uh, <laughs> was that? Yeah, Keith's dad gave a house away under that kind of circumstances. To a, yeah, high pressure evangelist or even a a salesman who has a scheme that they come to your house and they try to convince you you'd need you'd need a two thousand dollar vacuum cleaner. And and once they get in the house, there's no way to get them out. No, no, you you can't go down and buy a hundred and fifty dollar Hoover and go around a vacuum. You need one that costs two thousand dollars. And let me show you why. Well, I, I would say if you would like to buy a two thousand dollar vacuum cleaner, feel free. I'm not here to tell you what vacuum cleaner to buy, but I'm talking about this idea of not out of grief. In other words, something happened to motivate you to do something that when you think about it later in a rational frame of mind, you wish you hadn't done it. All right? Now, Paul doesn't want Christian giving to be that sort of thing. So by telling them, think ahead of time, we're sending emissaries from Macedonia, and we want you to help contribute to this offering but think ahead of time about what you want to do, not out of compulsion, not out of grief, and then when we get there, or uh, then we'll have the offering and we'll go on to Jerusalem with it. Okay, so we're learning things about giving. Not out ahead of time, not out of grief, no regret after the fact, not compulsion. That word could mean, again, obligation would be another way to translate it. Not, not out of obligation. For God loves a cheerful giver, which is the Septuagint version of Proverbs 22.8, which is a little different than the Masoretic text would have it, but it's from Proverbs 22.8. So we also see here that it's thought ahead of time. There's no grief after having given, and there's no compulsion or obligation that forces you to do it, but... It should be done with an attitude of cheerfulness that a person who's a recipient of grace, and remember the grace is the key word in these two chapters over and over again, charis, grace, 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 grace. So a recipient of grace becomes a part of the body of Christ and sees needs around, whatever they may be, and joyfully wants to participate because that's part of fellowship. That word shows up too. They joyfully choose rationally, to participate in giving. That's the Bible plan. Okay? Yes? I was just thinking, if you think of this in context of Ananias and Sapphira, you have almost the opposite thing that's happening there because they are giving, grudging, they're keeping it back for themselves, and they're pretending to give something more, so it's an antithesis of this kind of a concept. Let's talk about that. That's a good point, Keith. Let's talk about, I'm assuming everybody knows the story of Ananias and Sapphira. People were selling their capital assets, which, by the way, 
only that stopped, that practice stopped, and some scholars actually think the poverty in Judea that Paul was trying to help was caused by that. That, that the church divested itself of all their capital assets, so everybody became impoverished. You know, the Lord didn't return right away, okay? And now we've got to go on and work, and now we don't have our fields, and now we don't have our means of uh, gaining uh, income. Now, Ananias and Sapphira, they saw people giving and decided, you know what? We would like status, what motivated them to say they gave away, they, they gave all the money when they really didn't? Well, because they wanted the status. Well, everybody else gave, we want the same status as being givers as, as somebody else. And so they lied about it and said they gave all the money, but they actually kept back part of it. And remember what Peter said to them? Again, we're going from memory here rather than turning to it. He said, wasn't it in your own power? Is that what he said? It was in your own power. You did not. There was no law that says every Christian has to divest themselves of all their capital assets. The thing that Keith was talking about earlier that happened to his father, I was in that group. There were, we were told that that was the more pious thing to do. Yeah, everybody sold their house, and everybody gave their money to the apostles, at the feet of the apostles, sort of after the manner of Acts, under the idea that that was a more pious thing, and then if you did that, you were a better Christian than the ones who had a job or had a house. Yeah, very similar to the thing in Acts, and we took that as our role model. And so, and I was very pious too. I sold everything I had. Nothing. (laughs) I owned nothing. In fact, I I had to borrow a mattress to bring with me when we went there because we were living in a furnished apartment. We didn't even have furniture. Had no money, had no furniture, had no job, had no assets. I gave all, and it was true. (laughs) But uh, a little harder for some of the people. Now, that turned out to be a bad idea for us just as well as it did in Acts, ultimately, because we don't see this repeated eventually. Because what happened in this group that was functioning that way, of people selling their houses and then they'd buy big properties and people would move in together, well, it turned into kind of a Ponzi thing, if not because of fraud, just because of reality. Eventually, there was no new people selling houses, and you can't spend the rest of your life living off of capital assets. So once all the houses are gone, once all the jobs are quit, and then nobody else wants to do this anymore, there's no source of income. And so there we all sat, impoverished, and eventually people that had sold houses in the early 70s for, I'm thinking, well, we knew people that when they sold their house, you know, houses were $40,000, 50000 And when they came back, out in 1980, the same house was over 100000 and they had no job and no money, and a lot of times they were in their 50s, and they had to try to find a new career because they hadn't been doing any work for... It was a very bad situation. So there, that's the tale of the, my youthful, uh, I don't know what. Stupidity. stupidity? Well, thanks for putting words in my mouth. He said it's stupidity. <laughs> okay, well, that was my idea of trying to be the best Christian I could. Now, Ananias and Sapphira it does illustrate something. They, they, could, they could have not sold anything. They could have not given anything. But what they did was they lied because they wanted to gain status in the eyes of other people. And so they both dropped dead. I heard John MacArthur talking about that narrative, and he's, he's, he was saying, 
I don't think we really want all those signs and wonders that everybody's talking about, because if you get all of that, you also get the Ananias virus. <laughs> Interesting. Okay, so not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. So the person who gives because they have been the recipient of grace, and they're so thankful for the Lord and what he's done for them, and they are born again by the Holy Spirit. They have a love in their heart that God puts in there. According to Romans 5, God puts love into our hearts. And that love that we have is for God and for our fellow Christians. And it even extends out to neighbor, whoever it might be, like the parable of the Good Samaritan. So Christians have always been generous. That, the thing that's, I think, disgusting about these schemes and scams and bad things that have happened over the years to, uh, to try to extract money from Christians, is it's, an, it's abusing the fact that Christians really are generous, right? And they always have been. Christians have been, always been generous throughout history, throughout church history. And if you go, it, just look at America and go around and look at all the hospitals that are named after whatever. Our, our daughter was born in a little hospital called Lutheran Deaconess. It's, it's no longer there. We had the cross from that hospital on our old church building. We got it when they demolished it. There's a Methodist hospital here in St. Louis Park. And so Christians have always been generous. They've always been benevolent. They've always built hospitals. They've gone on the mission field, and they've worked on the mission field to help people that, that are in horrible condition uh, physically and spiritually. So Christians are by nature generous because God gave us grace, and that makes us generous. But it's so wicked to take advantage of that by saying, okay, just, just the ordinary generosity that Christians have, that they're willing to give to support a local church, to support missionaries, to support gospel preaching, to support helping the poor, all these things that they'll just always do because they're Christian, that's not good enough, some people think. That's not good enough. We could get even more money from these people. We came up with a scheme that told them that if they give $1, God will give them 100 Or if we did an emotional appeal right at the end of the service and get a tear-jerky story and then just extract the money out of them, like I was saying about the evangelists did. Or if we did a scheme where we tell people that they should pledge to give money they don't have. Remember we talked about that? There's a passage in here that tells us not to do that. Literally tells us not to do that. No, you don't place to give money you don't have. That's not a good thing to do. Because you're, in a sense, you're tempting God. You're saying, I believe God is going to give me $500 so I can give it to, toward the building fund. I don't have 500 but I believe God will give me 500 so I can give it to the building fund. And I'm going to write down on paper and sign it that I'm going to do that, and I'm going to turn it into the church. I'm totally against that. I'll tell you why. Because we're tempting God. What happens then if God doesn't give us the 500? Who failed? Did God fail? Well, no, God doesn't fail. Did I fail? Well, maybe I didn't have enough faith. Or you might say, well, okay, I think I better go borrow the 500 off of my charge card or something and give it because I don't want to admit to the church I don't have enough faith to make my pledge. It's just a bad, 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 bad. <laughs> a better way is just be joyful and generous and give as you purpose in your heart. And the Lord will use the generosity of Christians to take care of the needs 
and he has done for centuries. He doesn't need any of our help beyond just following the principles here. So we should be purposed ahead of time, not out of grief, not out of obligation, because the Lord loves a cheerful giver. The Lord loves a cheerful giver. Okay, a couple cross-references. There's a section in Deuteronomy that I think is interesting. Alice, if you could lug up Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 11, and then Proverbs 22, 9, Troy. Proverbs 22, 9. 15, 7. If there is a poor man with you, one of your brothers, in any of your towns in your land, which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart nor close your hand from your poor brother. But you shall freely open your hand to him and shall generously lend him sufficient for his need in whatever he lacks. Beware that there is no base thought in your heart, saying, The seventh year, the year of remission is near, and your eye is hostile toward your poor brother, and you give him nothing. Then he may cry to the Lord against you, and it will be a sin in you. You shall generously give to him, and your heart shall not be grieved when you give to him. Because for this thing, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all your undertakings. Yeah. And the seventh year would mean that, well, I won't give anything back. Yeah. Did you, okay, verse 11, oh, too. Okay, sorry. go ahead. I'm sorry. 11. For the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying, you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Yeah, so it said the poor shall never cease to be in your land. Didn't Jesus say something like that, too? You'll always have the poor with you. The way life is on planet Earth is, and is always, isn't always the same people. Um, people can be rich and then they can become poor, or they can become, be poor and then become better off or wealthy. I mean, status changes. Status changes. Uh, we're just to be faithful, and the Lord knows what we need. Diane and I got off to an inauspicious beginning, not the least of which was we joined that group where you couldn't have any money. But after we'd been married for 12 years, I think it was our 12th, like our 12th anniversary, we looked back over the years of paying taxes and not paying very many because we didn't make anything. We realized that out of the 12 years we were married, only one of them were we above the official poverty line as established by the U.S. government standard. So we were below the poverty line 11 out of the first 12 years. And the one that we were above it was the first one. <laughs> so we were going backwards. But the thing is, if you got the Lord and you have the joy of the Lord, we did, we did everything everybody else did. We drove around in cars, howbeit old ones, and we bought groceries. And we, we went down and saw Grandma and Grandpa for Christmas, and we brought... We had a child that was born, and we paid the bill. We managed to pay the bill for the child. We couldn't do that now. It was cheap to have kids back in those days. <laughs> you know, 1974, I, I, they had a program where if you're poor, you could pay ahead of time, and then you had kind of a student doctor. And so that's what we were doing with Jessica, and we were just paying like what we could afford every month for like so many months before she was ever born. And so we were able to pay for it. But then things got somewhat better as it changes. And I, I, I know a lot right now a lot of people are very concerned, and I, I know some of you are suffering, and I've heard stories from people in our congregation who are suffering because of the economy, and people that are older or are planning on retiring now have no assets 
that would support somebody retiring, and I've heard some stories like that. And, and we should pray for one another, care for one another, and uh, realize that the Lord's going to bring us through this. We'll get through it. We will get through it. I know, because it happened in the late 70s. I lived through it. And um, I would suggest that you don't take panic uh, approaches to things based on people who sell fear. Let me tell you, just a little wisdom, no extra charge. I hope it's wisdom. In the late 70s, most people were convinced that anything on paper was worthless. Okay? Currency was worthless. Stocks were worthless. So they said certificates of deposit were worthless. Everything on paper is worthless. So they were saying there were newsletters going around and people writing books about that. And the only thing that was worth anything was something tangible. So they said in, in like 1979. And so people were buying sacks. Anybody, some of you baby boomers are nodding your head. You were there too. Okay. So that we knew people that lit, we know one couple that divested themselves of all their assets and put everything they had into a bag of gold coins. Okay. With the idea that that's the only thing that's going to be worth anything. Well, a few years later, that gold went way down, and, and they lost most of their money. Other people had bags of silver coins. Remember that? You'd buy coins that were minted before 1964 and earlier, and it was all silver, and you'd have a big bag of coins. There, I got an asset. If I have a note saying I've got $10,000 in the bank, we thought that was worthless. And so people, if, if you were there, people were convinced of that. A lot of people were. And it turned out they were wrong. People still buy, they still sell, eventually they start buying cars, eventually the stocks start being worth something, and eventually the people are always going to need a roof over their head, they're always going to need to eat, they're always going to need transportation, they're always going to need this, that, and the other thing, and these things get bought and sold. Now, what does the Bible tell us that we can know for sure? I'm going to make some application here. People are telling me I'm not good enough at application. Yes, go over here. Ecclesiastes 11.1 1 says to cast your bread on the water, but it also says to divide your portion into seven or eight different places because you never know what disaster okay. will happen on the earth. That's Solomon's wisdom is to diversify. Well, here's some principles. The Bible teaches us basic principles. One of the principles is not fearing and not having anxiety. Be anxious for nothing, but... In everything, make your needs and concerns known to the Lord in prayer. It, and it also says that we should not, re, we need to realize that God takes care of the lilies and the sparrows and whatever, and they don't worry. They don't have frets. God takes care of them. How much more does He love you? How does, much more does God love you and care about you than those uh, lilies of the field or what have you? It's not easy, it's not fun, but you know what? We survived, we survived. We, like I said, we had nothing for years and years and years. Nothing. And uh, when I was at Bible college, uh, there was a, a, a red owl. We were living literally in a ghetto in, in inner city. There was a red owl right across from us on Chicago. We lived by Chicago and Franklin. Well, we used to call it dead owl. <laughs> <laughs> And, and Diane and I were the only ones I think we ever saw going to that store that actually spent money for food. I mean, there were people coming out of that store with great big carts full of stuff we could only dream about ever buying, 
And they didn't have to use money. They had, I don't know, some sort of, they did, it wasn't even food stands, there was some kind of program, which was fine, but we, we used actual money. But we didn't have very much of it. So we lived on kippered herring and eggplant a lot. Because you could buy an eggplant for 29 cents or something like that, and you cut it really thin, and you put a lot of batter on it, and you could actually eat that. <laughs> okay, read your verse, Troy. Well, my point is, the Lord will take care of you. He takes care of me. He's going to take care of all of us. And we need to be generous and help people in their tough times. And we need to pray for one another. And we're going to get through whatever happens. So as Christians, we don't have to fear. The Lord will take care of us. Okay, go ahead, Trent. He who is generous will be blessed. For he gives some of his food to the poor. Yeah, and we're saying, by the way, when we're warning people against the health and wealth gospel... We're not saying that God doesn't bless givers because it says so in the Old Testament. It says so in the New Testament. God does bless givers. But that is true because God blesses Christians and he's the one who gives us grace and he's the one who makes us generous. And we're glad to help and God does bless us in the process. But we're not buying a blessing by giving. I wouldn't say it that way. I wouldn't look at it that way. But the truth is, God does bless generous people. I want to ask a question, because what happened in Acts, in context, is that the persecutions were going to break out, and people would get killed and get dispersed all over the country. Mm -hmm. And the Jewish church, all except the apostles, really, was driven out of Jerusalem Mm -hmm. by the persecutions that were there. And it would seem to me, when I read the text now, in, in... retrospect that God put it on the hearts of people to sell all their property and give it because they wouldn't have it anyway. They were going to lose it anyhow. That's an idea. And after Jerusalem was destroyed in 70 AD, the Christians didn't lose much money because the Christians weren't there and their property was already given away because God had put it in their hearts to sell it. That interesting take on it, Brian. In uh, Romans 12, it talks about uh, spiritual gifts. And one of the gifts there is he who gives. So if that's in the same context of okay. giving money, would giving a biblically be considered a spiritual gift? It is. It's called a charismata. And in Romans, it's talking about gifts that differ. There are people whose uh, motivation and gift when they, in the ministry is they just love to fund things that they believe are good projects. They love to give money toward the gospel. And that's what they love to do, and that's probably an expression of that gift, that gift of the Spirit, in Romans 12. And I've known people like that over the years. That's just how they do their ministry. They don't want to be in the spotlight, and they don't want to be the preacher, or they don't want a plaque on the wall, but they sure would love to give to help people with needs, or to give to help the gospel be spread, or so on and so forth. So that's an expression of that, I believe. Okay, so these gifts differ. These gifts differ. But everybody, in some ways, is a giver. Now, uh, I think I covered that verse. Let's go to verse 8, 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Now, you may have noticed repeated term there, and it's repeated more in the Greek than it is in English. And the repeated word is all. It's used in this verse 
multiple times. All, 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 all. I think I was, what verse am I on here? I was looking, I, I print out, I've been printing out from my logo software, the Greek. And then just kind of glancing down the page, you start seeing these, these terms. Um, pas is all. Pas, all, then pas, always, all, all, again, and so forth. So this is uh, what's being emphasized. And the key theological term in the verse is charis, grace. Grace. That's the theme of 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, is grace. God causes grace to abound, literally to provide, to be provided in abundance, so that all, always all, it says, you have sufficiency. Uh, that word there, uh, it's an interesting word, and I think I'm going to quote a scholar on that, the word translated sufficiency was used in the, the philosophies, the Greek philosophies, as a virtue. And Paul doesn't mean it the same way. It would be kind of a, a, a virtue of self-sufficiency. And in the Greek thinking, it would be a virtuous person needed nothing or no one. And maybe the reason they had this self-sufficiency was they just voluntarily lived a very, very simple life, so they really didn't need anything. And so, by doing that, they were exhibiting a certain virtue of not needing anybody around them. That's how it was used in the Greek world. But that's not how Paul understands this. Because he understands us depending on the Lord and on one another, and he's taking up an offering to help help Christians in Judea. So, this um, would probably be better translated in this case, always having all you need. So, God will abound to you so that you have everything you need, and have an abundance, um, uh, in other words, more than enough, so that you would be able to be generous. Abounding in every good deed would be generous in one's giving and compassion and helping those around. So grace is the source of every good work here. To summarize, God's grace overflows to them so that they may overflow in good works. This is a way of trying to bring out what the Greek is saying. Yes? Well, isn't this the application of the previous verse about being a joyful giver? And in the current times that we have of stress and financial stress and fear of paying our bills and fear of the coming retirement crunch and fear of the things that we're seeing, just I mean justifiable, factual things that you can see, uh-huh. And a, a normal, rational person would be concerned about the financial crises of our country if we live in this financial uh, context. That we can look at that and says, as I understand grace, and as the means of grace are coming to me, and as I can understand that God has sufficiently supplied not just what I have here, but eternity is fine for me. Uh-huh. And to the extent that I believe eternity is fine, that God is provided away there, how much more will he carry me along now that I will have sufficient to be continue to be generous with whatever he does give me? Amen. Like the widow's might. The widow was generous with her might. She just had a might, but she exhibited that kind of generosity. And it was spontaneous. Nobody told her that's what she had to do. 
Um, all grace abounds in abundance. Um, I'm going to quote. Here's, let me distribute some verses. Robert, uh, uh, could you look up James 2, 14 to 17? And then Larry, 1 Chronicles 29, 1 Chronicles 29, 12 to 14. And Lincoln, Psalm 84, 11. And I'm just going to look up this page. Garland here had something I like. Oh, yeah, a bunch of stuff. While they're looking that up, I'm going to quote from the scholar talking about the, the Greek and about what Paul's actually saying here. According to uh, Dave, uh, Dr. Garland, reluctance to so, so generously then reflects a refusal to trust that God is all-sufficient and all-gracious. It also assumes that we can only give when we are prospering and have something extra that we will not need for ourselves. Paul says that at all times God provides us with all that we need so that there's never any time we cannot be generous. In 9.8, a word having all you need translates atakia. No, atarkia. A word that Greek authors... Used to mean self-sufficiency. I was telling you about that. The cynics, here were the people who used that word. The cynics and stoics of Paul's day understood self-sufficiency to be related to freedom from external circumstances and other people. You don't need anything. You don't need anybody. That's a cynic. Cynics are literal philosophers in the ancient world. We still use the term today. It's a cynic. Paul does not use the term in a philosophical sense, but in an economic sense. Having enough does not simply mean reducing one's craving for material goods and becoming independent from everyone. It means reducing what one wants for oneself so that one has enough to share with others and create interdependence with them. We may not have all the money we want, says Dr. Gallagher, but we will have all the money we need to be abundant in our giving to others. The whole purpose of the collection, therefore, is not to establish the independence of the Gentile Christians from the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem, but to deepen their interdependence. You know, difficult times often changes our understanding about how much we need one another, how much we need families. And, and, and if you have a Christian family, thank God for that. Because um, and it's a reason why we want to develop Christian families and develop bonds within our Christian families by God's grace. Because they'll be, we need to be there for one another as much as possible. And there, there are times in history that's the only mode of survival. In 1930-whatever-it-was, my father's family, before I was born, I was not around in the 30s. I want you to know that. <laughs> and uh, they lost everything they had. They lost everything. They lost their farm. They sold the, 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 they traded their entire farm to a real estate agent during the Great Depression, and they were in Missouri, for a truck to put their few possessions in to drive up to Iowa. And, they, and, they, and, and before they got out of town, the truck broke down, so they didn't have that either. So the guy, came, the guy that had ended up with the farm gave them a ride up to Iowa. Now, why did they go to Iowa? Out of all of the extended family, the only person that had any money was my great-grandma Watson and great-grandpa Watson. They had a farm, and they weren't in debt so they could keep their farm, and they weren't losing their farm like a lot of people did during the Depression. 
And so they drove up there, knocked on the middle of the they tell a story. They used to tell a story. The door were locked when they got there, and it was the middle of the night, so they took a board, and they had the slatted siding, so they went the board up and down the siding to wake them up. And here's a family of ten people saying, we don't have nowhere to go. We have to stay with you. And that's where they had to live and, until the, various, the sons then ended up all going off to World War II shortly thereafter. And that's how I ended up growing up. And they came back from World War II. Things were better. My grandpa was able to buy a farm, paid for the entire farm in one year during the Second World War. He planted his entire farm into flax seed, or to flax, on a hunch that that would be a good thing to do. Planted every acre he had, and he was just renting, or I mean he was buying the land, but he had a lot of debt on it. Planted flax, and the price of flax went through the roof because the war effort needed They were making flax seed oil for artillery shells, and he paid his farm off in one year. So you never know what's going to happen. All right, enough of my story. <laughs> the point is, it's amazing how we can survive. Robert, go ahead. James 2, verse 14 to 17. Dear brothers and sisters, what's the use of saying you have faith if you don't prove it by your actions? That kind of faith can't save anyone. Suppose you see a brother or sister who needs food or clothing, and you say, well, goodbye, and God bless you. Stay warm and eat well but then you don't give that person any food or clothing. What good does that do? So you see, it isn't just to have faith. Faith that doesn't show itself by good deeds is no faith at all. It is dead and useless. Interesting, isn't it? Very interesting. So faith, is that, James isn't telling us we don't need faith, but he's telling us our faith if it's genuine faith, it will express itself in actions. And one of the actions that it will express itself in is being generous to the person that we know who is in great need, who needs our help. Okay? First, First Chronicles 29, 12 through 14. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name. But who am I and what is my people that we should be able thus to offer willingly? For all things come from you, and of your own have we given you. Wow. So that's quite an attitude, isn't it, that we give. Who are we that we even are privileged to participate? (laughs) Isn't that something? Who are we that God would so honor us that we get to participate in this way. It's a good attitude. Everything, every good and perfect gift comes from above. Okay, and then the next one was Psalm 84:11. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord gives grace and glory. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Hmm. Amen. Garland goes on to say, Paul also differs from the cynics and stoics in, in the use of Autarkia in his assumption that self-sufficiency does not come from one's own, one's own earnest self-discipline. It's a gift of God. Therefore, self-sufficiency is a misnomer since it is sufficiency that comes from God, not from the self. Paul believes God bestows both the generosity and the resources for generosity, which is why he lists liberality as a spiritual gift in Romans 12.8. Brian, you brought that up. Liberality is a spiritual gift. All right, let's go go on here. One more passage. 
In verse 9, it says, As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He gave to the poor, and his righteousness endures forever. This is Psalm 119 and verse 9 in the Septuagint. It would be the Hebrew text 112 and verse 9. So let's turn to that. Psalm 112 and verse 9. Notice how the New Testament quotes the Old Testament. There are several ways that New Testament writers introduce the Old Testament. One of the simple ways is, it is written. But at other times, the New Testament says, as the Holy Spirit says. You see that in, in the book of Hebrews. And the clear implication is that the New Testament writers believed that the Holy Spirit inspired the Old Testament, and in, that if you could establish a point from the Scriptures that were written by the prophets, by Moses and the prophets, whatever that may be, and they quoted, by the way, in the New Testament, they quoted all the great sections of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, which would be the, the wisdom literature. And they cited all of these as being authoritative and binding. So Psalm 112.9 in our Bibles, it says here, He has given freely to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn will be exalted in honor. His horn will be exalted in honor. Why do you think there's so much in the Bible about the poor? Why do you see, why do you see that topic so often? Anybody want to discuss that? Jesus talked about it. We have parables about it. You have the parable of the Good Samaritan, and so on. Yes? In James 2, 5, it says, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Yes. He chose the poor in, the, uh, in the, of this world to be rich in faith. Paul in 1 Corinthians 1 says, Consider your calling, brethren, not many noble. I mean, uh, oftentimes uh, people that come to Christ, it's not the Always the case, but a lot of times people come to Christ, they have nothing going for them. I think it's it's easy to understand material poverty, and so if we can understand that and apply that to our spiritual lives, we can realize how spiritually poor we are. Yeah. If that we do that, then God will grant us grace. Yeah, and I think if we can see it through the eyes of faith, we will realize we're a lot more spiritually poor than we are materially poor. We're way more spiritually poor. Because our spiritual poverty would be compared to the glorious riches of Jesus Christ. Yes. I just had a thing I was thinking about your application with the, your family going up to Iowa in this. Isn't the concept that you'd, you'd learn from your family going to Iowa and showing up on a doorstep and being taken in is that the gospel or something of God must have been at work of your great-grandmother to take them in and to allow mm-hmm. them in so the mm-hmm. teaching of the gospel to her somehow was manifest in taking in people that came to their doorstep and not because if she would have been a Christian and said, no, you can't come in, she would have been disobeying yeah. the commands of James. Right. And she wouldn't have had any grace in her life. That's true. And it's also something to think about, Keith, or all of us, as we're raising our children and we're teaching them a Christian worldview, 
Christian values, the truth of the Bible, we're teaching things that I'm not I'm not just talking about common grace, I'm talking about grace in Christians to raise their children, that we're teaching them that those things are important. Okay? And that you that your your relationship to your family is important, that your relationship to one another is important, that you'll that you, that you would be there because you never know. You may need those parents. You may need those siblings. And Christianity has always taught the value of strong families and of teaching people the ways of God. One of the things, if you want to look at our website, I've mentioned this before, under reference links, I put up uh, an article or writing from Charles Hodge on the effect of the Word of God on a society when it's taught to children in churches and taught in families and so on. In other words, when massive amounts of people grow up in church being taught the Bible, Hodge claims it has a powerful effect. Okay, Now, the application I would make out of, on that is that when that doesn't happen, people are asking, well, let's, let's make an application to the election. Okay, People are asking, why are so many people voting for persons who take stands that we consider abhorrent as Christians? Okay, uh, like abortion. Why? Why? Why are the masses of people voting for uh, like this? Well, let me tell you, the only reason we don't think that way is because the Word of God is having an effect on us. Okay, do, do you see what I mean? We, we need to get back down to the foundations of what. What, what's needed in our families and in our churches and what have you. Now, wh- wh- how did the Word of God... Hodge wrote in 1860, thereabouts, okay? 1870, somewhere like that. When most literature that was being published in the United States was Christian. Unbelievable flood of Christian publishing was going on. Christian books, Christian tracts, Christian everything. Uh, the Word of God and teaching about the Word of God was flooding every home. Uh, very much so, not that everybody was Christian. Now, what happened in the intervening time that got us to 2008? Well, right after Hodge's time came the modernists, right? And he was in Princeton, and that was the bastion of great, solid, conservative Christian teaching. Well, what's Princeton now? Liberal. The... Modernists said that we can't expect modern man with his scientific knowledge to believe miracles, resurrection, angels, demons. We can't believe these things. It's not, it's not credible, so we can't expect Christianity to be based on miracles because there are none. So we've got to do something. Well, so we demythologize the Bible or we turn the Bible into something less than it is. The Bible, they said rather than saying the Bible is the Word of God, they said the Bible contains the Word of God. And us theologians will decide for you which parts of the Bible are really God's Word. And it turned out that what we could glean from the Bible was some moral principles and ethics. And most people don't realize that liberalism in 1890 actually had Christian ethics, and the liberals would agree with us on ethics. At that point, take for example the book "In His Steps" by Shel- was it Shelton? Yeah, he was a theological liberal, and his 
he, and his liberalism was, if we take the ethics of Jesus, okay, and his ethic was, what would Jesus do if we use that for our ethic, and we applied it in our towns and our society, then we'd have a, a better country. We'd have, we'd have better ethics. But he didn't see the need for redemption. Okay, yeah, right. So you don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. You just have an ethical idea of what you ought to do, but you don't have the Holy Spirit because you're not saved. Because they don't believe in salvation. They just believe in ethics. And there's a picture of Shelton, if you look on the Internet, with a bunch of other prohibition people busting bottles of whiskey out in front of a, um, a saloon. This was during the, the time they were trying to bring in prohibition. So his ethic was, I mean, he was conservative ethically, but he didn't believe in redemption. Okay, so by diminishing the Bible to simply an ethic manual, you don't have the power of God at work. And then it got worse sooner. What's different now is that liberals don't even agree with the Christian ethic. All right? They have neither the redemption nor the ethic anymore. It's just liberal, liberal. Now, so we had the 20s. Then there was a counter-movement called fundamentalism that became known as fundamentalism and evangelicalism. And I won't go into the difference between those two. There is a difference. Uh, well, I will too, as long as I reason. The difference was, uh, at first there was no difference. And a fundamentalist and an evangelical were the same persons. The, the fundamentals were things like the blood atonement, the virgin birth, the, the authority of Scripture, the inerrancy of the Bible, things like that. But the movement went two different directions in the mid-20th century, and fundamentalism as a term was taken up primarily by separatist fundamentalists. Now, separatists was somebody who would not would just minimize how much intermingling you're going to do with anything going on out here in the world. And separatists generally were legalistic because they wanted to make rules that would make Christians make it impossible for Christians to integrate with any anybody in the world. They'd, they'd just be too eccentric. And so that and they're still around. They're still separatist fundamentalists who believe in isolating themselves from society as much as possible. Evangelicals were ones who believed that we should go into society and fight the battles. In other words, we should, we should believe that our Christian worldview and our Christian thinking is able to stand the test of going into the arena of public debate and explaining our ideas. And also, uh, evangelicals weren't separatist in a legalistic sense. They believed that you needed to integrate in society in the world, but not of it. Otherwise, how is the Christian witness going to be salt and light? That's the main difference. Now, here's what's happened. In 1950, we had the invention of the church growth movement by Donald McGavran and Robert Schuller. They invented the church growth movement. And their theory, both Schuller's and McGavran's, although they come from different backgrounds, was that the church had to look attractive to the world as the world is. In other words, we needed to go out in our society and find out what people want, and once we understand what they want, the church needs to reflect the needs and wants of the people around. I don't think that McGavern, Schuller was a liberal from day one, but I don't, McGavern really wasn't a liberal. I don't think they intended to take the Bible out of church. I don't think that was their main goal, but it, it was the sad result. Because as a matter of fact, the Word of God is not what people want to hear. And so once this got popularized and spread around by people like Bill Hybels and Rick Warren and others who are the kind of technocrats of this, 
The result was that the church wanted to be relevant, so it didn't teach the Word of God. So now what do we have? Well, all the mainline churches that have been taken over by the modernists, the Word of God went out. The clear teaching of it. Now, the evangelical movement, which was the biggest version of conservatism, way bigger than separatist fundamentalism, the Word of God went out of there too. Not by legal establishment, but just by fact. Then, some of the big movements that make up a lot of evangelicalism came out of uh, heretical backgrounds. We have the Word of Faith movement. Okay, that's a huge thing. They have the Word of God, but they're teaching heresy, and it doesn't really have the same effect as if you teach the truth from the Bible. So what we have is a long way of coming to my conclusion about why America is pagan. The Word of God is not resting on even the Christians heavily enough. David Wells has been saying this since the 90s, since his book, No Place for Truth. No Place for Truth is a seminal book by Dr. David Wells. I've read it two or three times. The Word of God is not resting heavily upon us. We give lip service to it, but we don't really train our children in this. We don't train our, our children. The, the youth groups and the youth programs, the reason we started Armor Bearers here is because all of the national programs that we could have just joined had taken the gospel out. Is that right, Sonia? She's one of the ones that helped start this. And so we're, we want, the, and when they're taking the Word of God, for the most part, it's just... Uh, not there in the youth uh, materials, not there in the Sunday school curriculums, not there for the, 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 the teenagers are being taught something else other than apologetics and the Word of God. So what do you have? Is an, I don't see how America can be anything but pagan. You, you, you're not going to believe Christian morals and Christian truth if the Word of God doesn't inform your thinking. I like what Gary Gilley says about this in his book, um, that, that he was talking about when he was here. He says, wisdom comes from Christian values. Christian values come from a Christian worldview. A Christian worldview comes from Scripture being train, training our minds. So that's my assessment about where we're at in America. What's going to change it? Only, only the gospel uh, repentance, pray that God would raise up Christian leaders who would fight the battle to get the Bible back into the church. If the Bible, if the Bible's not going to be in the church. We can't be shocked that the Ten Commandments are not in the courtroom. Who are we to complain? I'd like to have the Ten Commandments in the church. Wouldn't that be a good start? To that end, I'll preach on them next week. So God bless you, <laughs> and I'll see you upstairs.